There's this nice trend going on. We actually talked about it yesterday in the office where all Web2 companies are working on centralizing their data, right? They, they use like LinkedIn ads, TikTok ads, whatever, and they have to centralize all this data into one point to run analytics on it. So that's the trend we have going on in the, in the normal web, right? Well, in Web3, everything is, is decentralized, but actually centralizing your data in one point is very powerful because you can easily run analytics and everything. You get more insights on your data. So we have to find a way in Web3 to centralize your data but basically keeping it ownershipless, or so to say, like keeping it trustless. In English, this always sounds a bit weird because trustless sounds a bit like you wouldn't trust the data, but actually in blockchain terms, it means that you don't have to trust anyone for the data. Because if I would now request the data from well, TikTok, for example, right? I have to trust TikTok that they give me the right data because they own the data and they do modify it. Actually in Web3, this wouldn't be the case because we are making sure that everything is, well, trustless and ownershipless. Welcome to the Proof of Talk Blockchain Podcast. My name is Alex and our mission is to help you get started in the blockchain space. This is why we are talking to experts from the fields of NFTs, DeFi, Metaverse, Web3 and much more once a week. For today, let's get started and let's fall a bit deeper into the blockchain rabbit hole together. Hi, welcome Fabian Rive. Hey, welcome. Thanks for having me uh, again. Again, yeah. <laughs> In English this time. It's great. Yeah, actually, Fabian uh, was a guest on our podcast, but the German version. Now we are talking in English about the exact same stuff, of course, no, not. But uh, we already gathered some nice ideas. And I think if we want to talk about blockchain and dive deep into the rabbit hole, we need to talk about data on some point. And I think one of the go-to persons to talk about data with is you, Fabian. So I'm super happy that you're here with me and that you uh, tell me everything about uh, blockchain and data, everything I need to know. But first of all, tell me a bit about yourself. Uh, where did your crypto journey start? Because I already know it's uh, super impressive and I'm <laughs> very eager to hear it again. <laughs> Thank you so much. Absolutely. So I am a software developer and I'm quite young. I think that's what we, what we talked about last time um, already as well. So my, my whole like coding journey began when I was, well, yes, uh, well, I was always like a tech guy, right? But then real coding like began when I was like 16, 17, something like that. Had a very cool teacher. He got me into a coding competition um, and I was coding there. And then I was even able to replace my computer science A-level the coding competition and so on. And then I was like, okay, maybe I should look deeper into maybe becoming a programmer. Um, and then I, I applied at the, the SAP, a big German uh, like company for like dual study thing. Uh, but then family reasons came and, and I, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't do it. So I started freelancing here at a local like ad tech startup um, in my, in my town. Um, they were working with with an agency, but they weren't quite happy with it. So I took over the, the coding on that side. And then I started to like getting some, some skills, which you usually wouldn't have as an, as an 18 year old programmer, I would say, and then kind of like kicked off a bit of like my freelancing career. Um, and then I got invited from the SAP actually to a hackathon there, uh, met a guy um, who was into crypto. I don't know how he got into crypto, but he was in, he was like, you know what, let's do our own um, cryptocurrency. I was like, all right, sounds awesome. It was like 2019, still like bear market and took us like two hours And then we had nearly 20 token. And we're like, okay, cool. It's a three-day hackathon. What are we, what are we doing now? <laughs> and so basically we, we created something that hadn't had any, any value. And also like for me, actually back then, the whole crypto concept was very like, 
weird because like why would i just create a currency out of thin air if there's nothing like backing it and like you, you felt like, like a central bank at some point like yeah it, it felt like yeah okay cool right like nice like I, i see what we have here but like i can the thing is i mean you can code it uh, you don't need crypto like for like a real currency you don't even need a blockchain i mean i could code like a transfer function for something that's not what i need a blockchain for so i was like okay like kind of feels like made up and so on actually this was before dexes were a thing like before uniswap and so on were a thing and actually the only dex that was there was like the i don't know if you know it but like the mac McAfee created like the first like dex thing and felt so weird and then the dude was like you know what it's gonna list our token i was like actually i, I th is this getting illegal now right like, <laughs> like <so it's, laughs> everything around trading. this guy feels illegal Right, and like, what's yeah. going on here, right? So I think we listed a token, and of course there was like, no, we both didn't understand the concept of like an order book and liquidity and how does it work. And so it's like, it was like a weird thing, took us a day, and I was just like, absolutely, I, I don't know, I was just all over the place. Um, I, but then actually I was talking to the guy sitting next to me, master student um, at the, the SAP, and he was working on the CLA assistant. And the CLA assistant is a big open source tool from the SAP used by... Um, big enterprise corporations, uh, Amazon, Uber, PayPal, IBM, whatever. Um, and what they do is when they get a code contribution from a foreign developer, the foreign developer has to write um, a comment on his um, pull request saying, hey, um, something like I accept the contributor license agreement, CLA, right? Contributor license agreement. Um, so basically, you're giving away your rights so you can sue the big enterprises afterwards and so on and so on. And then this digital signature got stored on a hard drive um, at the fridge in the office. So like, not the best place to store signatures and so on. I just found it funny. And actually they were working on a solution to migrate the data um, away. And I was like, okay, actually might, that might be a cool like use case for the blockchain. So actually, I, I think I got into the crypto space, not through finance, actually through data, which is funny because I still stick to that. Um, and so the other two days of the hackathon, I was writing a connector to store those signature data on the blockchain. It was actually Ethereum, like Gurley, Testnet or something like that, but proof of concept showed that it, that it worked. And actually then I was like, okay, that's, that's super cool. Actually, I think even IBM even used that connector in some of their apps. So I even got some use case, it was pretty cool. Um, yeah, we got back to my normal like freelancing life and then half a year later, the crypto dude from the SAP called me and was like, hey, actually I found Arweave. Have a look into that. So I looked into Arweave, and Arweave is a, a decentralized storage network. Um, and this allows you to store any kind of data. So previously for the non-tech people in the podcast, maybe, they always have to define like a data schema um, in order to like store certain information on a blockchain. Um, blockchain storage is super expensive, like gas costs-wise, and so on and so on. And actually, Arweave had a different concept that made it much simpler to store data. And then I was like, okay, actually now I can store like PDFs and so on. So now thinking about the signature stuff and now being able to store PDFs, of course, the first thing that comes to your mind is decentralized DocuSign, right? Like I can send a document to someone else via the blockchain, they can sign it and we've, we will forever have a proof that this person signed it, attached with the PDF and so on. There were like two little problems with it. One that the data is always public, if not encrypted. So it was like maybe for contracts, not the best thing, but actually if you would encrypt it, it, it would be a suitable solution. And the other problem was that because you're just signing with an address, you wouldn't know if that's like the real like signee that is supposed to sign it and so on. And so I just got thrown into a rabbit hole of like, actually we need 
kind of a way to identify if an address is a human or if it's like maliciously operated or whatever. Um, then I talked to the CEO of our with Sam. Um, and then he was like, actually, yeah, let's just think about a solution to come up with this. And actually, um, the solution to this was then called a verify was my first like real crypto project. And what we did there is we came up with an algorithm that was, um, analyzing the network traffic on our weave and then figuring out if, um, an address is a human or not. And the way it works actually quite easy. It's basically saying, well, um, Alex, if I send you like a thousand dollars worth of Arweave tokens one time, you could argue, well, this might be a scam, right? You scammed me, I sent you a thousand dollars and so on. But if I do this repeatedly, it's most likely not a scam. Um, and we looked at algorithms out there and actually the very fitting algorithm for that is actually the Google algorithm. So the way Google got actually popular was that they were thinking about actually if one web page cites another web page, then this web page must have a better reputation. And the more uh, basically citations a website has, the higher we're going to rank it, right? Because in the beginning, the internet was for educational purposes, um, which now got a bit drifted off. But back then, right, it was, it was used for that. And actually, this is, for example, the reason why Wikipedia would be such a good source, because you would argue that a lot of um, sites, right, would cite sites cite with a C, the, the Wikipedia page. And so, of course, Wikipedia got a, got a good reputation. And then if the well-reputated page then cites a different one, more of this kind of reputation weight get, gets transferred over. And so by this, you would have this network of knowing which sites uh, have a high reputation, which don't. I mean, you took the same approach and said, well, if I send money around, it's kind of the same thing, right? If I send money to my uh, German Sparkasse, whatever bank account, but the Sparkasse must have a high reputation because so many people trust them and, and send the money there. Um, and which actually, is not that smart, actually, to trust. Sorry, the which Sparkasse, is, which is yeah, not actually not smart. smart. That's true. That's true. But yeah, on so. a blockchain, it, it worked. Yeah. It worked, right? Um, and so this was the first product. And actually, the way we also like amplified, we made um, actually quite a good of revenue with it because back then you would, I think, pay like ten cents to verify another human in the network, so you could basically boost your reputation by paying it. And the reason was not that we wanted to make profit, but actually we needed an economic disincentive to spam the network. Because otherwise, if I, I could build up a big reputation and then just spam all addresses and give them all high reputation, then the whole network would just go out of control. Um, and so we kind of added this 10 cents fee so it wouldn't be economically worth it, so to say, to run a so-called civil attack, meaning building like a bot network, because at some point in time, you don't have the money to, to pay it. Um, and well, back then it was 10 cents and then bull market came. Um, and <laughs> it wasn't 10 cents. It got, was like five or six euros then or something like that. So we got quite some, some good money with it. We're like, okay, that's, that's cool. It's fully open source. Everyone could have used it. And actually... Um, we called it a day. We're like, okay, it's cool. It's it's used by the community. It's owned by the community. It's run there. Um, actually, we had a little like profit sharing um, mechanism around it. So like, it wasn't just us that were earning. Other people could buy into the the DAO back then, and they could then also earn something from the revenue stream. And so it was like a full sort through thing. And then we were just browsing through uh, through Gitcoin one day and saw an offer for bridging data from Polkadot over to Arweave. We're like, okay, we know Arweave, we know data. Let's do it. And this is how the whole Kive thing got, got started. Um, and then it just snowballed from there. We got more like the whole like Kive data bridging thing became a thing. I don't know, should I, I can dive deeper into Kive if that's... Uh, yeah, that would be no. awesome. You can okay. just tell us a bit about what you are actually doing and what your everyday course are like. Because from my point of imagination, which is quite limited uh, when it comes to data, 
<laughs> I can imagine quite like nothing. So my, uh, <laughs> my imagination is blank when it comes to data. I'm really um, not into that. So if you start very basically with what you're doing on a daily basis and maybe just have uh, a deep dive into the whole vision and from there we take it on. For sure. Um, so basically what Kive is in simple terms, right? It is decentralizing um, data. And we say that we are building a decentralized data lake, but why is this so important, right? And the problem is, is what you do, and you can think of it very physically, um, is actually if you're building a company and by law, you would have to print out every transaction this company does, right? And save it in a folder for later auditing reasons. And you would have to keep this folder permanently, like forever, forever, forever. Then what would happen over time is you would build, you would have to have huge storage needs, right? Storing all those physical papers, but you wouldn't make any profit on it. It would just cost you money because you would need to order it. You would need to have people there that you sometimes would have to then retrieve um, the paper if needed and so on and so on. And of course it will lower your profit um, as a company. And so what would, what could happen in the decentralized world if, if those little companies will not be profitable, well, they would shut down. And then we'd only have those big key players out there and then you would go back to a centralized um, network, right? And that's kind of like the very nice metaphor to think about because that's actually what's happening on every blockchain. You have to keep track of every transaction, right? But you're not monetizing the data access part of it because you just have to be there for mathematic reasons to prove that the blockchain is actually still correct. Um, and so basically you've, you come to scalability problems over years because you're accumulating more and more and more data. This gets more and more expensive and more and more tricky to retrieve, right? And so you really can scale that, that greatly. Um, I could give like some Ethereum examples about it, but like put this in for, for a later point in time. Then actually this is exactly kind of where Kaif comes in and helps applications. So what Kaif does, it, it takes this overheading data um, and puts it into a storage optimized solution, like a data lake, right? Which is run on we fully decentralized. And the way we ensure that the data transport is correct is we're duplicating this data, think about it 50 times, then storing it once on we and all the other 49 duplications are getting checked if it's the same than the stored version. And if it's all equal, we're good to go and we have successfully migrated data from the source into the destination. So it's really kind of like decentralizing data. Um, because you can also apply the same idea to Web2 data. You can take it, replicate it, store it on Web3, and if it's correct, you keep it there. And then those other blockchain networks or other applications can start deleting their, um, their over-accessing data so they are more profitable, so they make sure that they are more scalable and the whole network stays more and more decentralized. That's the main concept um, of Kive, I would say. That's cool. I understood that. Why is decentralization so important for you? Yeah, um, it is very important because actually, so there, there's, there's this nice trend going on. We actually talked about it yesterday in the office where all Web2 companies are working on centralizing their data, right? They, they use like LinkedIn ads, TikTok ads, whatever, and they have to centralize all this data into one point to run analytics on it. So that's the trend we have going on there in the normal web, right? Well, in Web3, everything is, is decentralized, but actually centralizing your data in one point it's very powerful because you can easily run analytics and everything. You get more insights on your data. So we have to find a way in Web3 to centralize your data, but basically keeping it ownershipless or sort of say like keeping it trustless 
in English, this always sounds a bit weird because trustless sounds a bit like you wouldn't trust the data, but actually in blockchain terms, it means that you don't have to trust anyone for the data. Because if I would now request the data from well, TikTok, for example, right? I have to trust TikTok that they give me the right data because they own the data and they do modify it. Actually in Web3, this wouldn't be the case because we are making sure that everything is well, trustless and ownershipless. This is the same what we do with Kive. Yes, Kive, the Kive network has access to the data, but anyone can access it for free. And Kive doesn't own it. Like we don't produce the data, we just keep it in this framework for developers to access. And this is so important to keep everything fully decentralized. Because if you start adding trustness, so to say, back in the system, then you then you aren't decentralized. It's like building a skyscraper on sand, right? Because yeah, if you're if you're the the fundamental stuff you're working with isn't fully decentralized, then nothing on top of it can be decentralized. That's cool. Yeah, when we talk about personal data, I'm not a huge fan of Facebook or any data monopoly out there. Yeah. I can't imagine Web three is going to change that because uh, if we think about Web three applications like Facebook, Insta, whatever, but decentralized, it means that our personal data is still ours. So there's a, f a very limited chance for censorship and for influence. And I really like that part. A censorship is something we can work around, but influence, being influenced by data that uh, big companies use against us or for influencing us, maybe not even against us, but for their vision maybe. I think that's a huge thing because I can imagine just uh, being a young person entering Insta and just seeing that kind of lifestyle and you are just like, okay, it has to be like that. Uh, but in fact, it's just a very tiny part of what is happening out there and the rest is being censored or is being um, like changed. So the influence is still on track with the vision of the company. And if this whole thing is falling away because we has we have trustless and ownershipless data i think it could really change the world and my life for sure but the society i think just imagine growing up without being influenced by facebook mark zuckerberg that's crazy isn't it just imagine a world where uh, data is yours and nobody is using it to to make you vote for something, for someone or anything. I think yeah. that's nice. That's a nice Absolutely. outlook on, on life, I guess. It is, it is. But actually, I think I have to, from a tech perspective, mm -hmm. uh, dis dis disappoint you on that. Because mm -hmm. actually, blockchain is the complete opposite. Because yeah, um, we're always talking about that the data is, well, we own the data or we own, you own your crypto, um, but actually... Actually, you don't, right? It's like the thing is, you don't physically own it because actually there are two things that can happen because I can also say, well, I own my Google documents because if I yeah. sign into Google, I have my documents, right? If I have my private key on my blockchain, I can access my data. Without my private key, I can't access my data. Without my Google account, I can't access my Google data, right? I, I would say the only difference is that Google kind of sits behind, has control over the backend and is able to move data from A to B without you knowing it, right? So actually, I wouldn't say you own your data, I would just say you have more control over the data, so to say. And also, which is very interesting, is actually the fact that on the blockchain, everything is public. Yeah. It's even more public 
than it is on, on Instagram. Let's say Instagram is, a, is an absolute awesome example, right? Because Alex, I don't know what your feed on Instagram looks like. I have no clue who you follow, who you, who you like, um, which pictures you're looking at. But on a blockchain, I could just search up your address and I can see that maybe, oh, you bought this NFT, you bought that, um, you transferred this and that. Actually, in theory, consumer-specific content creation with a public blockchain is much easier um, than it is would be for, for Instagram or something like that, right? Um, and so I think it's very crucial for us that we get this, the education on that point, right? And really educate users that actually everything you do on a blockchain is way more public than it is on reality. And I also think it's so important that those like more uh, privacy driven, like ZK blockchains and so on, become more and more of a thing if we want to be more consumer based. Actually, for us on Kaif, it really doesn't matter because we're working with public data anyways, right? Data is public. We're working with public data. We're just making sure it's more accessible. With private data, it gets it gets very, very tricky because I personally, I wouldn't want using like a crypto insurance and everyone could see my, my health stats. Yeah, that's crazy, isn't it? I, I wouldn't like, wouldn't like yeah. that. So that's so important that actually the ZK stuff, I think, uh, kind of becomes dominant. Um, like You can also argue, I would say ZK, it's, it's like good and bad at the same time because I think it, it's really consumer-friendly. But I think that's actually back to the German podcast uh, we had, right? Where we talked about the tornado cash um, sanctions. It could be too consumer-friendly on the other side. Because I think if a country would sanction something, then it would be a complete private blockchain where actually no one knows what's happening under the hood because you always try to get some control, right, over the people well, living in your country or whatever. So I think it's going to be a very kind of critical piece of infrastructure that's coming up on the complete private side of things. Although I do agree it's a necessity to have um, because otherwise we're just going to run into a huge, much bigger problem than we have right now. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I'm always thinking about just imagine some kind of very, um, just call him a Hitler the second is emerging and he's using the data on the blockchain because it's so easy accessible and he just can sort out, okay, who used what, who is in contact with whom, doesn't need to be a Hitler or something, but just very mean person or entity that could use all the information on the blockchain. And I think misuse is something we need to address because we already see misuse of data in Web 2 and I really don't want to see that in Web 3. So it's crucial for me as a consumer to, to be educated and to have others being educated. Because I think that's the main important thing, uh, most important thing, to be honest. If we start Web3, let's make it uh, great. <laughs> and don't repeat the shit we already see in Web2. And as you're always surrounded by all of that data, I don't have really no clue about data. So it's uh, always like a jungle for me. If you talk about it, it, it gets structured for me. So it makes it easier to understand. But I really don't, uh, I cannot really, I don't know, I have no feeling about how much data is out there. So what kind of amount are we talking about? Is there a huge blockchain data problem out there? And I don't know, because uh, I have a node at home, like a lightning node. So I'm used to the Bitcoin data and it's not that bad. But there are so many blockchains out there and there will be even more. If it's about food tracking, I don't, I don't know. There yeah. will be so many more data out there, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but for me, it feels like they are all flying around me and I have no clue how to yeah. get a straight line into that. Absolutely. I think pretty steep statement, which I don't know is true from my side, but I would say 
buy a good MacBook with one terabyte storage and can store all blockchain data on it, probably, besides Solana, right? Because actually, the, the blockchain data we are working with today isn't much. It really isn't much. I know that we're storing like Moonbeam or something, which is a Polkadot EVM blockchain, and it's like a few gigabytes. Like, it's, it's really not much data because right now we have those scaling problems, right? And we cannot start to think bigger because we, we are missing these like early kind of like scaling solutions, maybe, maybe like us or like others, right, to be able to handle all this data. Actually, I think Solana is the biggest um, in terms of data production. I think we're talking about like terabytes um, there, but also to be honest, terabytes for traditional data scientists isn't much. It really isn't much. Like it sounds a lot to like the end consumer, but I mean, just think about like Google or something, how many like exobytes or whatever they have, which is a million terabytes or thing. Yeah, million terabytes. Yeah. So like, and they, they, they can handle it. And Google is crazy fast, right? You Google something, it's there. So like there is for sure a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of optimization possible on blockchains, right? Um, and actually also like the data we work with is still very limited. Like it's not like, I think Kai is actually the first solution out there where you can really kind of dump any data in there and you can start working with it. It doesn't work with any, any other blockchain. And um, especially on EVM, which is always like my, my interesting um, fact, which actually a lot of people um, don't know, which is that um, if you run an Ethereum transaction, everyone is familiar with the concept of gas. How much gas does this transaction cost? And actually this is due to some underlying code that computes every um, operation your um, your execution would do. Let's take an easy example. I transfer from A to B. So the underlying execution would be subtract amount from A and add it to B. So we have one subtract and one add operation, so to say. And they have an imaginary gas cost that's written in the EVM light paper of two or something, right? And so we have one subtract and one add, meaning that we have a gas cost of four. Numbers are incorrect, but that's like a high, an easy overview. Actually, accessing the storage of the EVM, like of the Ethereum virtual machine, costs like 20,000 gas or something. It is magnitudes bigger than normal computer operations, well, because you have to carry around storage potentially forever. So you have to compensate the machine for carrying around some data that might never be used. And this is the reason why gas costs are so high. It's like a made up disincentive to actually store data on the blockchain because it's more optimized for computation. And this is also the only reason why we don't store NFT metadata on chain because it's just too expensive. That's right? crazy. And it's, it's literally just a made up concept that's mathematically proven to work. And for example, if you would build up like an EVM compatible solution on Arweave that's optimized for storage, but better computation, you could even re reverse the gas cost, so to say, and make the call to storage very cheap, but the call for computation higher, for example, right? Because, well, you have different optimization factors, you would have different gas costs when storing that. So that's a very, very interesting concept, by the way, playing around um, with that. But you can really see that we are right now limiting ourselves to kind of like live out the potential because we know that the scaling is impossible, right? Because you have to replicate this data across the whole world, like geographically decentralized, this just costs a lot of money. Because instead of having one image stored on your computer, it's now stored on 100 machines all around the world. Um, and you just have to yeah, compensate the miners correctly for that, for them to stay profitable. Because otherwise, as we already said, right, if a miner doesn't stay profitable, they shut their node down, the network centralizes again, then we're not much better than, than Web2. Mm. 
crazy. Okay, maybe um, I have an idea because uh, I was always searching for a secure cloud storage for my private data. It's not like crazy private data. It's just uh, pictures of my cat or my dog. Mm -hmm. So, but I just wanted to have it in the cloud, but not in the cloud. So I've been looking at uh, different decentralized storage possibilities, and they all uh, sucked. I can I say that <laughs> I tried storage. And it just didn't work. So I okay. uploaded all of that. It told me, yeah, that's nice. And then I wanted to access it and it was gone. <laughs> so oh, okay. I think it's a bug. <laughs> I think it's still there, but I cannot access it from uh, the interface. So some, yeah. something's broken there. And there's another one uh, with F. Uh, thought, yeah, maybe, yeah. And that was quite easy to use. And I'm... I've been in the blockchain game since 2015. So I consider myself a bit smart. <laughs> and I still, I couldn't handle that because it was just so bad um, to use. I, I think yeah. it's just not user-friendly at all. But deep within me, I still seek for a solution where my data is in the cloud, but decentralized. And what do you think? Is it smart to have your personal data stored like that in a decentralized cloud on blockchain base or is it just nonsense that, <laughs> that a blockchain enthusiasts like me are like running behind like yeah i need that i need that because it's on the blockchain um that's that's a that's a good question because i don't know if um I, it really, I would say it really depends on the, the value of, of the data, right? Because something you have to keep in mind is that all blockchains work with replication, right? So they are replicating the data in the network to multiple nodes, right? And therefore also to multiple independent data providers, right? And this, of course, means you're multiplying your risk of one of those data providers actually selling your data, in theory, if you just store it in Google Cloud, you only run the risk of Google selling your data. That's like a central point of failure, right? Well, if you're in a storage network, all those nodes have access to the data. And so I would say the best thing to, to do is actually encrypt it, right? So that only you have access to it, right? You can do this with your private key. I mean, that's, that's how crypto works. And then at least you can make sure that you can access it. And then it doesn't matter actually where you store it. Um, then a decentral, if, if you want to make sure it, never gets deleted and it's not managed by a central entity, put it on decentralized storage, like Arweave, Filecoin, whatever. And if you want it to live there permanently, but if it's something which you might want to delete at some point in time, then maybe put it on Google Cloud, right? Because uh, like otherwise it's like yeah. you can't really delete um, something you have uploaded on a, on a blockchain, which is something you really have to keep in mind. Like, is this something I'm fine with having there potentially being exposed at some point in time by someone. I mean, just imagine you could lose your private key. Someone else can find it. Or, I mean, there, there are crazy stories out there where people get kidnapped and like you have to like give them the private keys. And then, of course, they have access to it. So that's always like the, the, the thing you have to think about carefully is actually like how do you, how do you, what is, what is the consideration around the data you're actually storing, right? Yeah. So they can enjoy just pictures of my dog and me. <laughs> running around on the beach that's fine for me yeah um yeah <laughs> tell me a bit more about crazy facts about uh when it comes uh to blockchain and data because you are the master and um you told me so many nice facts for example this nft 
thing. You told me that we only have a very limited amount of, of or is it even that? No, maybe you just tell me. <laughs> What is it? What is happening with NFTs and uh, storage on blockchain? It's not that secure. Yeah, no, actually it is. So right now we are in this, we are in a very, very dangerous um, phase, in, in my opinion, where we, especially with the NFT market, opened ourselves up to um, retail and end consumer um, users, right? And they are used from Web2 to a very, very good user experience. Uber is my best example. You're standing in a completely foreign city, you press a button, and two minutes later, a car is there, picks you up, and gets wherever you want, right? You don't look behind at how it works. You don't have to care about it. It's just fast, it works. And of course, Web3 isn't that good yet, right? Like we want to get this Web2 UX user experience into Web3. And actually, the only way how we can do this is by cheating. And which is by cheating meaning that we can we introduce Web2 solutions in Web3. So it's getting a bit contradictory. So third example, NFT images are stored on Amazon S3 while the NFT itself lives on the blockchain. It's, it's a hack, right? Because I wouldn't be able to produce an NFT that cheap if I would store the image on the blockchain. It would cost tens of thousands of dollars, but then it would be on the blockchain. And I could make sure that I always have access to this image. By actually separating the image from the NFT data, well, I always own the NFT data, but someone could just delete the Amazon S3 bucket and my image would be gone. It's right? crazy. Yeah, it is. It is, right? And this is also very dangerous. Because we are kind of tricking ourselves into the state where we say, actually, oh, yeah, Web3, we're almost there, we're almost there. But actually, no, it isn't. Not at all, right? And this also happens with um, Oracle networks. So Oracles are um, a type of network that bridge data, a bit like Hive does, right? That bridge data into Web3. For example, non-native Web3 data, like USD to Euro conversion rate. Very important for exchanges, for example. But how do we get this on chain? Actually, there is... Um, like a network of nodes, they fetch the data and they put it on chain and then make it accessible. The problem is that actually some oracles don't validate the data or have very limited um, resources to actually validate the data. Um, and then we expose ourselves to a huge attack vector, which is that you can introduce incorrect data um, into an oracle and then do it. And it's actually like a lot of hacks, especially on bridges, happen like that by modifying the, the price stream And so on and so on. So actually, like as I already said, like if we if we don't keep decentralization as a necessity for data infrastructure, we're getting a 2008 financial crisis on the blockchain. We're like building up insecurities of insecurities, and it's just one burst of the bubble, and then the whole infrastructure layer is dead. Um, and so we don't don't want to happen at all. And actually, so many people say, yeah, actually, yeah. We start out centralized, but then we're decentralizing over time and so on and so on. And why do they do this? Well, because they want to have a good product offering in the beginning. Of course, if I can offer my investors, my, my customers, hey, we have a real-time uh, Oracle, here's the data immediately. Um, we have, just have to decentralize over time. And then, yeah, you, you fuck up because then you have like the centralized also like responsibility for the data. And if it's incorrect, you're putting millions and billions of dollars at risk, right? And this is so crucial to really get this right and get this into the people's understanding that they need to make sure that they're working with a fully decentralized stack. Otherwise, it's not going to work. Mm -hmm. Regarding NFTs, which are sold for millions sometimes, yeah. it's hilarious. Yeah. Isn't it? it? Is. Because uh, nobody really looked into the technology, obviously. 
before spending millions on something that is obviously half a scam or even 90% scam. Yeah. Like, and, and the things, I mean, like the, the ERC, um, the ERC stand for NFT is fully decentralized, right? Like the NFT ownership is decentralized. Actually, the only problem is the data you store with it. Like, I, I mean, I can send you an NFT without a beautiful image attached to it. And then, of course, the NFT concept works. But if I want to start to attach data to it, then I get to a problem. Mm. That's crazy. And it's really like, I mean, think about it. you would buy a canvas from a mm. well-known artist. You are like in the register. Yes, you own it. You own it. And one day it just turns white. Yeah. And it never comes back. And you yeah. cannot do anything about it. And then you go to the artist. You're like, what the fuck is it? And the artist said, no, you own it. It's your, it's your canvas. It's set here, right? It's yours. But like the image isn't there anymore. It's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. I uh, was thinking about Beeple. I think he sold at least one art piece for 6.9 million or 69 million. I don't remember exactly. But just imagine you're just buying this uh, little video. And you're just super proud and you just display it on your NFT frame. And yeah. yeah. It's gone. One day it's, it's gone. gone. And it's gone. <laughs> <laughs> and fun is gone. Yeah. So what do we need to look out for when we talk about blockchain and data? Is there anything else that you think that is quite scammy because people are just miseducated or not enough educated to really see where promises and reality are not aligned? Absolutely. I would actually say, I pretty steep thesis, but I would say this applies to almost all crypto because crypto is such a complex topic and you need to understand usually coding um, because you need to review the code if you want to make the due diligence on your own you need to understand finance especially in DeFi, understanding all of those concepts how does it work and so on to then really kind of get a sophisticated opinion on it and don't just trust the, the masses so i mean we've seen it on on terra and luna right what happens if you don't have some thought through um, mechanics, but everyone just invests in it and you build up this, this huge thing and then it's a, it's a huge failure in the end, right? And so I actually don't think there's anything like a an end user can do right. Um, it's just still, it's a super insecure place um, where you really have to make sure you do the right thing, especially sometimes you can even have, as I already said, you can have a fully decentralized application using some other like data provider, for example, that has some some weaknesses well, then you cannot even do due diligence on that if the lower part of it kind of fails. It's like, I, don't, I wouldn't say as an end user, you can really make sure that everything is fine. I think it's something the projects have to live and breathe, right, um, in order to, to get it right. Or another thing that can happen, it can be just a wait and see game. Um, for us, especially knowing we are fully decentralized, knowing security is our highest necessity and responsibility we could just in theory sit back and just wait until the world around us collapses right because it, it i mean basically think about the the lunar ust thing right if it was in the end maybe coordinated by a hedge fund right just arguing yeah like a billion dollar security is enough actually you see no right i mean a billion dollars isn't isn't that much for a big hedge fund if they want to f with you they they do it right and this is gonna this is gonna happen on the data infrastructure layer. Like let's let's think about it. I have a DeFi protocol that uses USD to Euro conversion rates, right? And I'm somehow able to, and trust me, hackers are able to get like a, an incorrect conversion rate done, and I'm just draining the whole thing. I'm draining because it is decentralized. There's nothing to stop it. There's not an owner that can say, no, we got hacked, stop it. No, you have to live with the consequences, right? Um, 
And it, it can be as simple as so think about USD to euro conversion rate. Instead of saying one euro equals one USD, I just say, well, 100 euros equal one USD and just get 100 times the amount out I would get. And I can just drain it, drain it, drain it, drain it, and I'm gone. Right? That's crazy. Yeah, so I is. think uh, we have to be super careful, especially when it comes to Oracle systems. I, I'm a huge fan of oracles because it enables us to do a lot of crazy things on the blockchain. For yeah. example, dynamic NFTs. I really like that concept because it can change so much for us in the future. It can be like gamification aspect, but it can be like a very scientific thing as well to have like sandboxing stuff. But if the data is wrong, uh, the outcome is just not as um, usable as we think maybe okay um tell me one more crazy fact about data on blockchain yeah um it, it will be it will be much slower than we know it from from web 2 right um there's also maybe a thing kind of going back to the to the last question um you have to look out for everything that says real time um because real time in web 3 cannot really work from my opinion, right? Maybe I'm completely incorrect, but I, I would just tell you my thesis, right? If an application is completely decentralized, right? Meaning it's ownershipless, like independently operated and also geographically decentralized, like all around the world, right? From the time of data production and this data item being sent in theory all around the world, right? This already takes some time just from a pure speed of light thing until this thing travels there. And then it has to be validated, secondly, right? Meaning there has to be some ping-ponging of communication in between those data sets and then being stored on chain, right? Takes some time, right? And maybe we, we can get it down to hundreds of milliseconds, right? Actually, it would be very interesting doing some research on how long, what's the fastest time you could get, like sending data around the world. There might be some data point out there, but in theory, we have this limit we cannot get faster, but actually some like higher frequency trading, they need to be faster than that, right? It's a very good marketing thing. Real-time data always sounds great for exchanges, right? But actually cannot work from a few like physics point of view, cannot work. Um, and I might just update my, my, my actually data knowledge on that. So for the next time we meet, I can actually tell the numbers what this theoretical uh, limit would be. But yeah, it's just super interesting that this also a fact that, that doesn't really work out or cannot work out. Mm -hmm. Now I remembered what I wanted to tell you. <laughs> Someone uh, once told me that uh, the blockchain is only as smart as we are because, and that completely makes sense, of course, the data we feed it is the data we produce. And if we are stupid, we produce stupid data that we are feeding the oracles, the blockchain, whatever. So when it comes especially to AI and that kind of stuff, they are racist and I think we already talked about that as well. Um, so all the, the faulty things we are doing right now, we are just reproducing it to something we cannot delete forever. And that sounds pretty crazy to me. Yeah. <laughs> like, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I think yeah, what you mentioned was this like data set bias thing, right? Which is that if you would have a, a artificial intelligence um, and you would train it on some data set that has a bias into a certain way, and I think we humans are always biased in some way, right? The outcome is uh, either like overfitted, like too too much towards that bias because AI is very good at 
um, recognizing trends. I mean, that's that's how they work, right? It's like they do the assumptions based off of trends, basically very stereotypical, so to say. And absolutely, it's absolutely a problem we we are gonna run into, right? It's like I don't think you will ever get a purely neutral data set on data, although, but I mean, on data that requires some human decision, right? Of course, like weather data, that's very neutral. Like we don't have to argue about that. That's like measured points and we go to go. But everything that re- has some human decision into it and that made it, it's kind of bad. It's a bad bias, right? Like it is a bias somewhere that the AI is going gonna, is gonna to pick up. So it's also very interesting kind of like in the next yeah, years going forward and like how that will, will influence us. And also very big topic I would be very bullish on is actually, um, I don't know if you heard about Dolly 2. It's like OpenAI's new AI and it can generate images Based yes. very, very realistic looking images. And it's very, very creepy. Yeah. I think they run some tests on uh, creepy images, on creepy women. I saw that. Mm, I saw it, the tweet as oh, well. It was yeah. fucking scary. I saw it. It yeah. freaked me out, really. It was so scary. Of course, um, it's super interesting to see what AI can do. But on the other hand, wow, dude, what a sick sense of humor when it comes to creepy images i just don't want to see that um really really creepy images i think there was a woman who was supposed to be very creepy and it was just made up of uh, at least 20 different creepy uh like tiny bits and details and it was just munched together into one creepy image and i thought if this is what ai thinks it's creepy I think AI is way more creepy than I thought. Yeah, and, and I actually think this is kind of exactly this kind of like data set bias, right? Mm-hmm. That turned out there. It's like it was always like it was always the same concept of women. It was just like very like yeah, weirdly looking women. I, I forgot the name. Maybe the we can look it up and, mm-hmm. and put it in in the podcast yeah, in some way. We will but, put it in the comments, of course. Right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And then we kind of take it from there. But actually, now speaking about what you said earlier, Instagram and stuff, right? My next big thesis is there could be like an Instagram where all content is completely auto-generated based on your data traits. That would be super interesting. And that's more like advertisement. I mean, think about creating the perfect advertisement. I think actually Dolly is pretty, Mm. uh, 100% there is someone working on that. If not, that's some free business idea here. But like, um, just just think about it. You have an advertisement, you have like specific traits. And if you look up Dolly, it's able to generate some pretty realistic looking images out of some very basic um, description. Um, and it's just crazy. It's just absolutely crazy what time we are getting towards where you cannot trust what you see, so to say, or where you don't know if what you see is, is actually real. I think we're already there with like Photoshop and, and all that stuff. We're there, but then it's completely artificial. Um, and it's going to be very interesting. Is there a way to check back? like uh, to trace back it just to have a background check uh, regarding that images are deep fake um, on I a database. Think, so I, I think there is, I think there is like some tool that is able to recognize deep fake mm-hmm. images, but to be honest, I don't know if that's going to stick around. Like if, you know, if you always have the perfect counter tool to towards deep fake, I don't think this, this will work because crazy. I, uh, I I don't know. I'm not too much of an expert on that, but I just can't imagine that you're because like if it gets better and better and better, how would you find out if that's something um, that's created artificially versus mm-hmm. something that's been just drawn or something like that? I don't know. So one day we just have to quit social media. Probably. Yeah. Probably. 
or Maybe. we all just or like yeah. the, I mean, the filter bubbles are just getting yeah. more and more crazy. Like uh, <laughs> it's 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 honestly it's going to be some some rough time we are steering towards right now. Yeah, to distinguish between reality and real content is already super hard. Yeah, like the made up world of some people is crazy. So anyway, uh, what is your approach when it comes to this kind of data and uh, anything surrounding that data problem? What is the perfect way to handle data nowadays so we don't head into this kind of uh, very, I don't know, a dystopian world maybe? <laughs> um, I actually think validation is, is the point where, where we have to go towards, right? And that's how we deal it. With, with Kai, and validation can look, actually, it's a very nice analogy. Cool that, that this comes up now. Actually, validation on Kaif isn't a fixed thing that looks the same for any data source. So the validation function on Kaif, something that the developers can call themselves because validation can look different in so many aspects. Let's take the idea of replicating data from the blockchain through Kaif. We can just check, does the source equal the destination? Boom, and that's valid, true, right? But for pricing data, um, we fetch it from different exchanges. There will it will never be the same. There will always be some difference in it. But what we can do is we can implement a so-called slippage, right, of X percent and checking if the price is not different than X percent. And if so, we return true when we say it's valid. And I think that analogy we can actually bridge over also to the real world. So I think what you have to do is if you see some facts, you have to make sure to validate them on your own independently, right? I think that's the best way to deal with like fake news um, and stuff like that to really kind of make sure that this is all kind of like in line. And then in the end, you have to make the decision yourself, right? Um, but actually, I think, yeah, it has to, the validation has to look different on any kind of aspect you're, you're dealing with. Sounds very like a, a lot of work <laughs> because yeah, just that, imagine you have and to validate that, that is actually the downside, right? So I yeah. think it's way too easy believing fake news than doing yeah. the research of everything you see. Because if you have to start questioning everything you see, everything you read, how is that going to work, right? But on the other side, that's also something I always found, found funny in school. Um, when I was in fifth or sixth grade, like Wikipedia uh, became more of a thing. And was, it was like the, like, oh yeah, you cannot trust Wikipedia thing because anyone can edit it, right? And then I always thought, actually, who tells me that I can trust like an, like a written book encyclopedia. Yeah. Cause that's like one dude, one organization that wrote it. So who tells me that they are correct, but on Wikipedia, we can always update information is actually incorrect or less trustworthy of a source. Right. I think there are two arguments Well, the one is yeah, non-experts can edit a Wikipedia article, but experts will write the encyclopedia, but it's still interesting, right? This was always kind of like the argument that came up. It's like, well, there are so many experts in the world. If someone would see an incorrect Wikipedia article and is an expert, he can always correct it. Mm. That's uh, pretty interesting. And to be honest, I studied Arabic history. So one of my main courses was how to trace back information until the Arabic uh, medieval times. So, and nice. they have something called Silsilas, and it's a, like a blockchain, but written or uh, like 
some sometimes not even written it's just a oral tradition and you can mm -hmm. trace it back because everyone mm -hmm. always says where did i find that information who taught me that so you can see like for 700 800 years into the past like where is that information coming from and then you can see the original information and you always um the people always uh, needed to take a note where they changed a bit of uh, information or the content or anything so you had this yeah it is crazy and you had this it's more like in religious you know cases it's not really like uh, science maybe but i studied religious science so i uh, focused on that but i found this very interesting because it's human but it's trustless you know because mm. it's always written down you can see every uh, duplication of the content with the changes yeah and that made made me very aware of what can i trust out there because everyone can censor or a book or any content and they can like infiltrate you with their propaganda and just tell you yeah but this is the truth this is the book we need to trust this is the data you need to trust yeah, yeah guess what no i don't need to trust because if there is a line of of many people back to the one original source this is what i want to trust and I saw this in Arabic medieval times. They were thinking about that because they encountered the problem that uh, people really uh, have been talking shit about each other. And they were like uh, misinformation about certain religious concepts and they just wanted to avoid that. Of course, blockchain wasn't a thing back then. Hmm. But for me, it looks a bit like a blockchain because you're adding a block to another block. And I really like that idea. And it gave me safety that the information that I'm working with is actually true. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And okay, of course, this person who uh, just came up with some idea could have just fucked that idea up and <laughs> never know. I, I didn't speak to him, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I like the concept. It's uh, really yes. reminding me of that. Super, super cool. I, di I didn't know about this at all, but it's very interesting. Uh, also having, see, yeah, seeing this kind of like pattern applied for so many years, right? Also, it's not like yeah. 10 years or something. No, like no, it's hundreds. Five of years, years as it is in crypto, but actually yeah. for like a, a pretty long time, it's, it's awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Maybe a bit uh, like nonsense uh, knowledge you would find <laughs> on these uh, ugly Instagram pages that who you want to skip like you know what how they uh, deliver data yeah but <laughs> crazy fact yeah where's your journey uh, like where are you heading to because you're so fucking young and you're <laughs> already so fucking inspirative uh, what are your plans where are you where's your vision going what are you planning for the future because I think you're a data wizard and <laughs> <laughs> I will. So, I mean, like very short term, I would say is first of all, getting Kaif into, into mainnet. Um, this will uh, happen this year. Um, and then we, I mean, we didn't talk about the security of Kaif, but we are proof of state networks. So we really have to go to mainnet and we have a trading token out there in order for us to really provide economical security next to the mathematical security. Um, so it's very important. It's like the next big milestone, so to say. Um, and then also successfully um, decentralizing the community aspects of Kaif or like the development of Kaif, because basically as Kaif operates fully decentralized already, right, with a working governance and so on, we of course have to now decentralize the parties 
so to say, right, and like decentralize also the tokens and off-ramp them to players in the ecosystem that are able to provide value independently of each other, right? Same with like decentralizing the development of the Kaif to not have one core team maintaining it, but also making sure that this also is in the good hands. I think that's a very novel job for the next few years, kind of like managing that, that everything went smooth and also kind of aligns with the bigger vision of what we all have in mind, right? Which is like, centralizing data in a decentralized world, right? Making it more um, accessible and easier to, to work with. And honestly, for like my, my big, big vision, what I would like to do, I just love being like a, a hacky proof of concept person, like generalist getting some concepts out. And I honestly would love to like maybe set up like a little like research lab or something like that that just dives deeper into like cool topics coming up on blockchain or whenever, work on it, maybe get a little proof of concept out um, and then call it a day, right? Maybe hand it off to some people that I can build a business around it on the ways to like sell it off, right? Patents or whatever. Something like that would be very cool. I'm like staying to the research um, arm of everything. That's cool. I will <laughs> follow your journey. I will uh, keep stalking you. And for all our listeners, how, where can they stalk you? I think Insta is not the place where we find you. No, Instagram is absolutely not my my place. I would say that the best place to, uh, to get in touch with me personally would be um, on Twitter, um, it's, it's Rive Fabian, my, my two names, um, um, reversed there, um, or on LinkedIn, it's just Fabian Rive there. That's way more easy. Um, and then if you want to find out more about Kaif, um, just go to Kaif Network. It's our main website. And um, we have a little like app you can play around with. You can see the data streams um, and so on. If you're a developer, we have some tools there for you to work with the data we're storing. Very active community on, uh, on Discord. If you want to yeah, engage more, uh, more and more with us, I would say that's the, the, the best place to get started. Awesome. We put all of that in the comments. So anyone who uh, wants to look into that, you're very welcome. Yeah, thank you so much for being my guest. Uh, I'm very honored that you're uh, <laughs> that we talked the second time. And it was equally interesting. I learned a lot from you. Thank you so much for that. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And hopefully, uh, yeah, see you again very soon, I would say. Yeah, when we launch in Espanol or... <laughs> well, I have to learn <laughs> Spanish for that. I, I'm on Duolingo French right now. Like, no, that might French, be a thing no. in a year or two, but then I'm good to go. Oh, no, no. <laughs> French, you're never going to hear me talking French. It's too exhausting. Sorry. You have to learn Spanish, but you will be like very fast in that. I know. Yeah, but we'll work. All right, all right. Yeah, you're super smart. You just do that. <laughs> cool. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. Thank you so much for listening in and tune in next Tuesday for another episode with another expert from the fields of NFTs, DeFi, Metaverse, Web3 and much more. In the meantime, tell us on Twitter or LinkedIn what kind of topic you are interested in and which expert you want to see on our show. Follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn, give us five stars on Spotify and help us spread blockchain knowledge.